Welcome to the present stage, Conversations with Theater Writers. My name is Dan Rubens, and I'm a theater critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. My guest today is James Imes, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright of Fat Ham, currently running on Broadway at the American Airlines Theater until July 2nd. I hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation. I certainly enjoyed getting to have this conversation with James Imes. So without further ado, here's today's episode of The Present Stage. James Imes, welcome to The Present Stage. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so thrilled uh, to have you joining us. Um, Before we get started, I'll say this is probably the most questions I've written down for an interview. (laughs) So so we'll see if we can get through everything. I think it's a play that... um, has so many different ways in um, and in trying to, to think through all the different angles wanted to explore, um, sort of kept generating, <laughs> generating new inquiry. Um, I want to start um, by mentioning that we're having this conversation on Juneteenth, the day after Father's Day, and also in the midst of Pride Month, um, all of which are um, events that, that connect in, in different ways to elements of, of the play. Um, about a black queer experience in the South um, seems like the right moment to be celebrating this play, especially. Um, and I want to talk to you about lots of different pieces of the play and and your protagonist Juicy's selfhood that I referred to. But I want to start with a, a Father's Day related question, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, when Juicy is visited by um, the ghost of Pap in, in the first scene of the play, he says, it's amazing what fathers think they own of their sons just because we share a name. Um, and to me, uh, it feels like the story of the intergenerational uh, inheritance of of masculinity and toxic masculinity is really so critical to how the play unfolds. Um, uh, that blade has been passed down for generations. Um, so can you talk about um, sort of how you reimagine the sort of Hamlet and Prince Hamlet, King Hamlet relationship uh, mm-hmm. for Juicy in the play? Yeah, I mean, the we don't get a whole lot of the relationship between them in the original. We we understand their relationship, and we understand what the ghost wants Hamlet to do, but we we don't get a whole lot of sense from their communication um, what their life was like together as father and son. And so I wanted to show that because I think that the father-son relationship is really complex. There's a long, rich history of um, plays and even movies and TV shows that explore that relationship. And um, I felt like I had some things I wanted to say about it. You know, um, I have a good relationship with my father, but my relationship with my father has has not always been good. Um, and some of that is a result of... Um, who I am and some of that is a result of who he is. And some of that is a result of me in some ways rejecting um, things that he inherited that he didn't even want, you know? So that felt like rich soil to start to till. And it really works well when you force the ghost to answer some questions (laughs) before, like, you know, it's almost as if, you know, juicy is like, I, Okay, I get that, but I have I have some questions about what you yeah. want me to do and how I actually feel about it. Um, I also wanted to sort of set the scene a little bit um, by looking at the uh, the settings note that you have both in the in the script and in the program, um, which has this sort of ambiguity about time and place. 
um, that's both incredibly sort of specific and evocative, but also sort of could be a whole sort of giving a whole range of options. So I'll just read it. Your your where is a house in North Carolina could also be Virginia or Maryland or Tennessee. It is not Mississippi or Alabama or Florida. That's a different thing altogether. So I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about how yeah. you conceived of sort of the place of Fat Ham before we talk about time as well. Totally. I mean, uh, uh, some of that is not really about the place specifically, but just kind of trying to reroute people's imagining of the South that it is not this big monolithic thing that starts at Maryland, ends at Florida, you know, it starts at the Atlantic Ocean and ends at Texas. It's Texas is very different from, you know, Arkansas and Florida is extremely different from Virginia. And I want to be really clear about this sort of like Piedmont Black Southern culture, you know, like I, I even account Atlanta in that a little bit. It's this like, what people would call the new South. <laughs> like <laughs> Southerness and Blackness function slightly different in those places. It's not good or bad, it's just different. And I wanted that contextualization to go into the script so that anybody who approached the staging of it would have that sensitivity to it. So that's that's a big part of why I make that distinction. And I think the major distinction is that sort of, um, Upper South culture is slightly different from the Lower South culture. Have you found it interesting to see the range of ways that New York audiences respond to the the setting of the play and and sort of the the world that you're depicting? I think the setting very quickly falls away, and then people sort of fall into the people. You know, the the audience at a certain point, I think the the where of the play stops mattering so much. And I think that that's a good thing. And I think that's inherently, you know, a Shakespearean, I'm stealing that from Shakespeare. Like Shakespeare tells us he's in Verona in Elizabethan England and they're dressed like Elizabethan yeah. <laughs> English people. So, but, but he's like, we're in Verona, you know? So yeah. um, there is a part of that tradition that I'm borrowing here of like, okay, I'm going to, plant the seed in your imagination of the place and then it's going to very quickly not matter the where yeah um and then to talk about the time a little bit if i can just read um mm -hmm. an excerpt from that note the american south to me exists in a kind of liminal space between the past and the present with an aspirational relationship to the future that is contingent to your history living in the south all that to say i'm writing this play from inside the second decade of the 21st century this world aesthetically sits anywhere in the four to six decades preceding the current moment. So I'm curious, because obviously there are elements of the script in the production that sort of delineate that we're not six decades ago because there's smartphones and references and mm -hmm. songs. Um, so I'm curious when you say the world aesthetically sits there, um, does that mean that you're sort of playing on experiences or associations from from over a span of time or, or sort of how much is um, that like production dependent or, or can you share mm -hmm. more about sort of... I think that note is much more about what I would describe as like cultural time. So like things move slower and that's not, that's by choice. I think, I think people um, in, you know, move at a pace that matches um, the culture. And I think the, you know, the thing that's really critical in that note to me is your aspirational life in the South is contingent about 
who you are in the South. Like if you're a black person growing up in the South, your experience is drastically different than a wealthy white person growing up in the South. And that's true anywhere in the world. But um, I wanted people to not feel like they had to make it ultra contemporary or like set it in like the eighties or the nineties to make it, you know, um, fit into a production that a director had like it should feel fresh it should feel like now but also there are cultural mores where i grew up in my family that are 10 decades old like things that people sort of wear or do you know i i think about there was a, a woman in my church growing up who never changed her hairstyle in my life and i'm 40 (laughs) Like that's four decades of wearing your hair exactly the same way. Right. And hair has changed drastically in that time. But that, but I never look at her and go like, oh, she looks like she belongs in the past. She just is existing, you know, aesthetically in the place that she was when she met that aesthetic choice or inspiration or whatever. And I think that that's a unique and beautiful thing about the South is that those things and then she's on her cell phone that she can't hardly use right <laughs> like all of that stuff is in place there um you know at least where i'm setting the play it's a little bit more agrarian than so it's not like metro atlanta like it's it's a small town that these yeah. people live in and that's just a very different time i feel and i feel this intensely when i go home slows down and so i wanted to try to capture that and then can you talk a little bit more about this sort of aspirational to the future that is contingent mm-hmm. to your history living in the South. Um, can you just share more about sort of uh, in in that sense of time mm-hmm. slowing down? How does that how does that fit into your vision of this play? I mean, some of that is like a little political. Like I think there are people who are who move slower because the system and the structures that they exist inside of force them to, not because they are choosing to. Yeah. And so I think that's what I mean about the difference between like, if this was a story about a white family that owned a barbecue restaurant and all these things were happening, it would still be funny. I think it would still probably be moving. Um, But their problems would just be really different. There wouldn't be a problem about, you know, if they owned a restaurant, there wouldn't be a problem about whether or not their son could go to college or not. That would probably be taken care of. And I think that there are a lot of people in the South um because of where they live and the and the systems that are in power where they live um that aspiration is sometimes thwarted and so i wanted to also put that in the mix because we have at the center of this play this kid who can quote shakespeare but is going to school online to be a human resource <laughs> management person which is nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to do but his aspiration is a little curtailed in a way. And um, I think that is because of circumstance and not because of his own ability, for example. And since you you talked about Juicy's relationship to Shakespeare, I have a lot of questions about Shakespeare and the, and the mm-hmm. play. Um, uh, I think sort of starting out, um, there's this moment where um, a little more than halfway through the play, I guess, um, where where Juicy is referring to Shakespeare and Tedra says, you watch too much PBS, and if you bring up that dead old white man one more time, you act like he got all the answers. Why was it important for you f- 
to you for Juicy to be conscious of the Hamletness of his situation and um, to bring to not just evoke Shakespeare sort of on the authorial level, but on the level of character. Yeah, I mean, I think that instantly forces the audience to remember that they're in a theater and that's really important to me. Um, and I do that in a lot of different ways in the play, but his knowledge and understanding of the source material that of, of which the story is being inspired um, I knew pretty early on I wanted to do that because I thought that that would make him a, um, I thought that that would make him a more interesting, I'm going to use the word interesting as opposed to reliable narrator. Um, because then he's in on it with us. Like he, he understands some things that we also understand. So then when he turns to us in those soliloquies, the power of that is stronger because we have a shared secret. We all know that he's actually Hamlet and he's doing the Hamlet thing now. That was, I, I really wanted to see how that would work and how that would function in a the theater. And I think it's a really powerful device to sort of, um, and you know, inform inside of story, um, the audience that we are aware of the source material or at least this character is a, is aware of the creative DNA that created itself. So it makes the character itself um, powerful, not just the actor playing the character, but the character is powerful right. because they have this shared secret with the audience. And I think, I mean, I had written down that my favorite moment of the play, I think, is when the first moment where he goes fully into him, that I have heard that guilty creature sitting at a play moment where it feels uh prepared in a way even though it's totally surprising and i am curious sort of how if you always conceived of that speech being in there in in full as it is or or sort of how you how you prepare an audience uh to suddenly be fully inside the hamlet text um and for it not to feel like a, a giant curve but just like oh of course <laughs> that that mm -hmm. th that's where we are yeah i um i knew that i wanted that speech in there because um i knew that i wasn't gonna buy write a better setup for <laughs> the players than shakespeare was i just i wasn't gonna do that um and so i knew that it was gonna be there and um i also have this like weird theory about um, Shakespeare in text and um, Black Southern religious tradition. So like, I know I grew up in a church where the King James Bible was the primary, if not only Bible that people read from aloud. And so I grew up with people speaking, um, thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, like speaking in Elizabethan or you know, I guess that would be Jacobean era English, like formal high English yeah. every week of my life. I heard people that look like me speak that language. And then I got to grad school and I was sort of taught that how I said that language was wrong or was broken in some way. And so I wanted to make sure that I infused the speeches from Shakespeare in such a way that they just showed up because I wanted to show that the way that Black people speak in this country, particularly people who 
sort of exists inside of a Judeo-Christian um, religious experience, they have access to that language that feels very fluid, feels very warm, feels very approachable because they've had to use it to try to bring people close, which is exactly what Shakespearean actors do. And so like when that text shows up in the middle of my black play, it's it it's surprising to some people, but for some people they just like lean into it because we're used to hearing it. We're used to hearing people speak with those accents, with those sensibilities, this kind of language. And so I was wondering about that. Like, how do you just, you know, sort of like flipping a pancake? It's boom, we're there. And it's the other side. And and um it works. I'm I'm really pleased that it it's delights people it doesn't take people out it makes people go oh my god yeah that's happening and that's um that's really rooted in this theory about um how that language functions inside of like specific cultural and and racial and societal intersections that's really a fascinating sort of different way in than i had understood and i'm i'm curious obviously in the past decades especially there have been more readings of the plays that Shakespeare's plays that have uh, centered around queer readings of the plays and looking for blackness, early modern conceptions of blackness in the or race in, in the early modern world. So I'm curious sort of how much are you interested in, in, in um, as, as someone writing a black queer adaptation or response to Hamlet, sort of how much are you interested in Shakespeare's own relationship to to race and queerness or or how much is that a value to you as a playwright or or as a as a shakespeare reader or playgoer yeah i don't know how much um shakespeare thought about race um i think he writes characters that come from different cultures and i think he writes characters who we would perceive as racially different, but he would not. He would say they're from somewhere else, or he would say, um, you know, his his description, his imagining of them would be just different from ours. So I don't think he's thinking about it in the way that we think about it. So I can't look at his work and expect it. Um, but what I, I think my responsibility as a contemporary theater maker is to look at that work. And if I am going to do, let's say, Twelfth Night, and I want to look at that play through a lens that feels contemporary, that feels very close, that feels very specific to the modern moment. There's a billion ways in which to do that. And it's because he's left, Shakespeare has left a ton of space around that text for us to build a world. And that's, you know, that's uh, one of the things that I love about Shakespeare is that just the slightest, you know, turning of the of the knob, you, you can be telling a strikingly different story yeah. than what has traditionally or typically been told. You just have to, you know, a, a friend of mine, Lorna Howley, always says, "There's no, the the, the all." I'll tell you what she always says. I'll tell you what's free: a good idea, right? Like all you really need is a good notion to like make. I think a compelling, strong, smart exciting production of pretty much any Shakespeare, even the ones that are not <laughs> so great. <laughs> um, because he leaves so much space and because he's largely writing about these people from different places from his imagination. 
like he never went to Venice, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's never been to some of these places that he's writing about. And um, that is also like um, um, important to me is that the, the play leaves a lot of space for designers, for actors, for directors, and even for audience members to sort of fill in um, their life, their experience into the, to the open space and I think it just makes for a rich, much more rich experience. So yeah, that was a long tangent to get to your answer, but I, yes, I think I answered your question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and kind of following up on that idea of sort of the space that Shakespeare leaves to sort of go in a striking different sort of interpretive direction. I was especially curious about how Juicy queers the, uh, what a piece of work is a man speech, which yeah. in the context that you, and Juicy use it in the play. Um, I went back. I went back to Hamlet to like yeah. to check the context and just to be sure. But like it, it reads incredibly different, but also incredibly clear about and without changing any words. Um, yeah, sort of plays completely different. Do you feel like that's? Do you feel like you, uh, sort of forcibly repurposed it, or do you feel like you? in the space that you described around that Shakespeare leaves, you feel like you've, you found elements that were sort of dormant in it and sort of just recontextualize them by placing it in a different moment. You know, what inspired me to do that with the text was hair. Um, that the text is in hair. It's, it's one of the songs towards the end. Yeah. And I did a reading of hair, like right before I started working on this. Um, and I played Wolf, I think. I can't remember who I played. I was terrified the whole time. It was just very stressful for me because I don't act much anymore. And I was not only acting, I was singing and that. (laughs) But I would listen to every rehearsal, listen to the What What a Piece of Work is Man song. And um, I was like, oh, God, this is kind of sexy. This is, or this could be kind of sexy. This could be like, a you know, someone, you just met someone that you think is, gorgeous or you just met someone that you really want to you know spend some time with and this is the language that goes through your head when you're thinking about that person um and so when i was working on the play i kept trying to find a place to use it and that moment showed up with because the larry and juicy scene was an utter surprise to me i didn't think that that i was going to go that intensely in that direction and then when i did i wanted the emotion of what Juicy was feeling after that scene to be so big that he had to reach for Shakespeare. Um, And that's kind of where that came from. And it does work. Like, it's like, yeah, I do feel that way. I've definitely, you know, been in a a rough patch with somebody that I was dating. And I'm like, what a piece of work is, man. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's just true in that context as well as in the context of the of the original play. Well, it's interesting with the hair connection to when you're what you're describing in terms of like the emotions too big that you have to reach for Shakespeare. I feel like that sounds a lot how people describe musical theater writing where like the emotions are so mm-hmm. big that you have to reach for song that there's sort of like a, a um, I mean, like the poetry of Shakespeare mm-hmm. being sort of um, a different sort of plane of of communication. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love musicals. I sing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not like, I, I'm never, I'm not like Alex Bullard, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm never going to be like that. Um, but I love the form. 
and um, I did musicals in college. And I think I try to write plays in such a way that there are these moments where the people are speaking, but they sound like they're singing. Um, and it's, I don't know how to describe how I know when I've, I've hit it, <laughs> but I know when I've like done it, I'm like, oh, that's, that's what that should sound like. Well, because I, there's something about the bend of how the line works that it makes it sound like they're singing. In rereading the script, and I have I've thought I've seen the play twice on Broadway, so it's fairly fresh. But I some of the the sort of rhythms and and tones of the of the text were so vivid, like I was hearing like precise line readings as I was rereading it in a way that I often don't sort of remember that vividly. So I think there is, I think that may, I mean, a combination of the acting and the directing, but also your writing, maybe there, I, I guess if you could share more about sort of what, what, what it, uh, what writing musically means to you um, hmm. in a text like this. I think some of it is, and I think it's true. I, I think it's actually true of, of most of my plays. It's, it's mostly about word choice. It's a lot about syllables. It's like, well, let's choose the word that has the most syllables, even if it's a little awkward, you know, you know, in terms of syntax. So like there's lines like um, you're bringing down the optimism. Like that line is more musical than you're a real downer, man. Like you know, yeah. <laughs> it even it even drops. Right at the end you know yeah. it's, it's not as a dynamic line as you're bringing down the optimism or oh i'm just trying to see what your recreational life look like like that line yeah is asking um the actor to play with pitch a lot more because you have to sort of you know i know actors are trained to like find the the most interesting dynamics of the line so i write towards that you know um and I feel like there's there's several moments in the play where characters have these, like that whole speech at the end with uh, Tio when he's talking about his- The gingerbread. His, <laughs> his gingerbread hallucination. You know, all of that is fantasy language. It's, you know, and, and it's largely written in, uh, the second person. So it's literally, he's not saying, this is what I did. He's saying, well, what if you did this? And then, then this happened. And then this happened. Like that is um, a musical device, you know, to put the audience in the shoes of the singer. Um, and we see that in popular music and in soul and R&B music all the time. And so that's another example of like trying to make the, the text sound and feel like music. Which I think is a great transition then into, I had a question about sort of the use of actual songs in mm -hmm. the play, um, both um, as there are moments where Tidra and Rev are singing along uh, to the radio, but also the karaoke sequences. Um, sort of how did you build the kind of constellation of music that you, and, and of course, obviously the sort of finale sequence yeah. music too sort of how do you build um sort of the musical structure the literal musical structure of the play yeah i mean i'm a person that is always with music um i just took a shower and i was playing music while i was showering mm -hmm. like i i am constantly listening to music so um 
people in my plays listen to music a lot and music is important to the characters in my plays a lot. Uh, the karaoke moments, I have to confess. <laughs> um, I saw in my research for writing Fat Ham, I watched a bunch of um, stage and film productions of Hamlet. And one of the stage productions I watched was a German language production of Hamlet by Thomas Ostermeyer. He's yeah. an incredible director. I've yeah. seen that production, yeah. So do you remember the moment when Gertrude is singing to Claudius? Yeah, in the, in the op- yeah, in the first two yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's an incredible moment. It's an incredible moment. And I was like, well, I don't, this doesn't make sense for someone to do this in my world, but what could make sense in my world and then how do i take yeah, it a step that's further? so funny i didn't make the the connection oh, yeah that's just so funny. ripping thomas <laughs> clean off but like I'm, i mean mine is a karaoke moment it's a, yeah. it's a different it's a truly different moment but that's the inspiration for it and then i was like well i also think we should see juicy do something similar we should see juicy also do this but his should feel different his should you know sort of be and his should integrate the audience as well like it can't just sort of sit in the world of the play and um Sahin the director uh said I got an idea and then I had to go away because at, at the public when we were in rehearsal I was I was also directing Fairview at the Wilma Theater at the same time so I came back and they showed me what they did and I was like that's brilliant that's wonderful go for it Not to say that the end of the play, that is entirely, with my blessing, the ingenious, brilliant imagination of Sahim Ali and our uh, choreographer, uh, Durrell. Because the script says the play ends in a celebration of the feminine and that's about it. And that is their interpretation of that, you know, directive from the playwright. And so like, I, I'm really excited to see, you know, this play is gonna be a few other places this season, what that looks like in other places and how that lands on other directors, um, because how it landed on Sahim is just so wonderful, that, that final sequence, um, which is largely, you know, the play is mostly done. like. You know, that no more plot happens after that. Right. Um, and yet I can't imagine the play without it now. Like it's just so um, steered into my imagination. He's just brilliant. Since you mentioned Fairview, uh, which I hadn't realized you directed a production of, I feel like yeah. I have a bunch of questions about sort of the relationship to the audience. And that's obviously a play that's incredibly meticulous and it's, relationship to the audience and and the audience's uh responses to the play are such a sort of significant role of how it plays out so i'm curious sort of how you um sort of mapped each character's or sort of the boundaries or the rules around each character's relationship um to the audience because throughout most of the play characters know that juicy is speaking to the audience but they can't hear what he's saying or they don't know what he's shared and there's a lot of especially Tito is very concerned about what what he's disclosing. Um, so how did you sort of um, sort of shape the arc of, of how the audience would be brought in um, and connect to different characters? So 
Well, you know, my my rule is that there isn't really a fourth wall. Like it's there's not really a fourth wall. And so I I write in such a way that I just pretend like no one ever invented that. And so the audience is always there's always the potential for the performance to go into the audience. And, you know, in you know, in the best of all possible worlds, that the audience has an impact on the performance. That is also important to me. Um, so that's just a, a, a thing I'm always trying to do. Um, I would say the rules are <laughs> effervescent. I'll use that language. The rules are effervescent. They are they are a little changeable. In my mind, and when I was writing it, my thinking was everybody knows that the audience is there. Most of them choose not to even acknowledge that the audience is there, which is also a part of breaking breaking the fourth wall. You can also choose, I don't want to talk yeah. to them. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to know who is out there. That is not a thing I'm interested in. And then there are some people who um, I think the people who can't hear what Juicy is saying are people who don't listen well. And the people who listen well can hear what Juicy is saying because Opal says, you weird, Juicy, because she heard what he said. Right. <laughs> she's the only, because she's a person that listens and responds. The people who don't listen are like, what you tell them? Right? That's intentional. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to make the moment at the end where they all sort of look out and go, wait, they want us to do what? Yeah, we're not, that's not what we do. Like that, that's where they make the choice is that they realize together, wait, that's what they want. That's why they're sitting out there is because they think we're going to do that. Oh, we're about to live real hard in front of y'all. And that's the ending of the play. You know, that's the thing that I want to make sure that people take away is um, is that, you know, the whole play, some of the, some people never look at, Rabbi shouldn't, but <laughs> Benjamin does sometimes. <laughs> Rabbi never, never acknowledges the audience until the end. She don't care about the people. She has no time for those people until she realizes that they expect her to kill herself or kill someone else. And that shifts all those characters. They instantly go, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. And then this intense celebration of life happens. So um, to answer the question in, in short, if you need a shorter version of this answer, mm -hmm. don't believe in the fourth wall. And I believe that the characters have really dynamic relationships with whether or not they want to be engaging with the audience or not. The characters, not the actors. The actors always want to engage with the audience. And to me, that's sort of connected to this conversation Juicy and Teacher have where he says, don't you want to know what it's like to be with your alone with your own thoughts? And she says, no, I don't. Um, and then when she's given the opportunity to, to address to speak to the audience she says i don't know what to she's, say or, yeah she says it's too private yeah. so she knows what she oh, would yeah. say but she's like but i'm not again yeah. that's another moment of like but i'm withholding this yeah and that's so if you imagine like whenever i see her uh, nikki do that i just always feel like 
oh, I want to know what you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll never know because the playwright didn't let you say right. what you were thinking. <laughs> but I feel like Nikki, when she does it, I'm like, oh, you're thinking, you want, there's something on your yeah. mind you want to say and you, you're you not yeah. going to tell me. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, I wish I could hear it. Right. Um, actually, I'll just say as a side note that the, the first, um, preview performance I saw in, in the Broadway production was Cynthia Erivo, who's one of your producers, did a mm -hmm. talk back after that performance um, yeah. where she asked um, you and Sahimali and the whole cast um, sort of what the the cost was of doing this production. And it was this sort of extraordinarily beautiful moment that made me feel like very, very connected to each of the cast members. Mm -hmm. um, and I... I that's not really a question, but just like just a comment that the sort of palpable sense of um, what the what the play has meant for each of the cast and sort of the community that they formed around it. Um, yeah, I think is really it was really clear from that conversation. Yeah, the play has changed all of our lives, like drastically. <laughs> like we're like all of us are are, I think, very different people having gone through this process so yeah that and that talk back i remember very fondly it was really lovely yeah and i remember benji k thomas um got a standing mm -hmm. ovation in, in the in the middle of it sort of celebrating her broadway debut yeah. and and sort of her whole career um it was really lovely um i've been uh in another sort of shakespeare connected question i had was um sort of thinking of the ways that the that the inheritance of Shakespeare, the play's own inheritances from Shakespeare um, resurface throughout the play, um, sort of in, in surprising moments or sort of the, I, the, the ah, there's the rub joke, I think always catches the audience by surprise because you sort of forget for a moment what, what the frame of the play is. Um, it seems to me that it sort of mirrors in some ways the ways that the, the intergenerational inheritance of uh, masculinity or violence sort of come in and out of the play and I'm and I'm curious sort of um, like they're both sort of inescapable influences on the character and the structure of the play mm -hmm. um, yeah so I'm um, and then and then in that final sequence both the the inherited masculinity and violence and the inherited genre constrictions are, are sort of cast off together um, yes so I'm curious if that if that's a, that's something that you've you've thought about, or or also if you can sort of talk more about um, sort of what the inheritance of Shakespeare has meant to sort of to you and 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 to this play, and sort of how you thought about um, what it means to sort of cast cast off the tragedy at the end in in mm. on both the Shakespeare level and on the the sort of literal level. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll tackle the casting off tragedy question because that that I. I have a really good clear answer for I just like had become I mean it was actually a pretty personal thing I just gotten kind of worn out with things that I perceived to be nihilistic and were lacking sort of um even an attempt at imagining joy or imagining prosperity or utopia like you know i i um i don't believe that 
I I believe that um, I'm a I'm a I would say I'm a religious person. Um, I grew up uh, in a, a Baptist family, and so faith tradition is important to me. But it looks very different than it did when I was young, um, and it's much more personal for me. And so, a part of what I think I want to be doing is helping people imagine liberation, imagine freedom, imagine uh ecstasy you know uh <laughs> people prioritizing things that make them feel good as long as they don't cause harm um and so like that is like seeped into how i structure and build place so that 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 is why i was like okay if i'm gonna mess with hamlet it, it's it's not gonna be a, a tragedy so we have to go whole hog in the other direction and that's yeah. just what i did i knew but now i'm like I'm, I'm contemplating this um adaptation of 12th night now that i don't think is gonna be very funny <laughs> you know it's gonna be a little because i'm, I'm it's gonna be a, a meditation on the loss of a sibling and like um that is at the heart of that play is how do you live after you've lost someone so close to you how do you build a life how do you fall in love again how do, that's at the core that what i to me that's what that play is about and um my version of that won't be as funny as fat ham so like i i'm always also like that's saying really there's different yeah. ways to yeah there's different ways to think about these plays um so that's one thing what was it the other question that i'm i'm slightly afraid to answer you asked me what was the other one. I guess sort of the the connection between the the inheritance of Shakespeare oh. and then and the and the sort of intergenerational inheritances in the play. You know, I almost feel like Shakespeare isn't an inheritance. It's like what's the thing that it's like a social security card. Like when you're born, you get one. Like <laughs> if you if you study theater at any point there's no escaping him it's not even inheritance it's like the air on almost and so like um because it is a thing that was so intensely required of me like you must master this if you're not able to master this you're deficient to me mastery is freedom okay great i'm gonna take this thing and that i'm being forced to understand so deeply and with so much complexity then i can I have mastery over it at this point. Like it's a thing that I know how to mess with because it has been so, you know, there's not a part, there's not a place in culture, um, especially in this country that the words and the ideas of those plays haven't touched. And so it's more than just to me an inheritance. Like it's, it's not even a thing I feel like I've inherited. It's a thing that I've been sort of forced to completely understand for survival almost um which means that i can then take it and run with it because it's mine can you talk more about that what you just said the idea of being forced to understand it for survival is that in the artistic mm. world or or how yeah you... i think it's in the artistic world i mean i, I work in the theater so the, yeah. it, the you know and i i haven't you know i was an actor for many many years and i didn't do a ton of shakespeare for fear that I was like not good enough to approach Shakespeare, 
Um, and, but I still wasn't like, I couldn't get away from it. Like, (laughs) any swing a cat in a theater season and you're going to bump into at least five of those freaking plays. It's not even like, um, it's just so intensely a part of how we see the world. And so when I when I talk about it in terms of survival, yes, uh, it's a part of that is because of, of the field that I work in. But some of it is just the expectation of someone who's well-read and thoughtful is that you will know this. Yeah. And the expectation isn't that you will know and be able to quote, let's say, Lorraine Hansberry yeah. or Toni Morrison. But those are my inheritances. Those are the things that those people wrote down on a page hoping that someone like me would read. Shakespeare didn't inherit, didn't um, bequeath anything to us. We just sort of are required yeah. to know it. It's just a really different relationship, I think. Yeah, and I guess then you're, you're, you don't feel the same responsibility to sort of preserve in it in, or, or sort of pass down it, it's just he didn't yeah. he didn't write yeah. them down they're not published after he's yeah. dead like he did it wasn't even something that he you know what i'm saying like right. his relationship to a play was much more like a gesture than even the way my relationship to a play is so yeah, yeah. um i i uh yesterday read the Broadway press script and the public press script um, from the mm-hmm. off-Broadway run side by side because I wanted to sort of find all of the changes. Um, oh my God, which, you did a lot of um, work. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was fun. I mean, there's not that many, um, yeah. but but some really interesting ones. So I guess I'm curious. First, um, you won the Pulitzer Prize before the Broadway production um, yeah. in revising a play that had already received sort of like the highest honor in dramatic literature sort of what was it like to sort of go back did it did it feel different once it had sort of been anointed in that way to sort of continue finding new things in it no i mean like the anointing of it is um hmm. yeah i won't go there it's great it's amazing um but no, it's it plays are always changing a little bit. And our world changes so quickly now that it's I think it's impossible to to not look at a play that I wrote, you know, five years ago and go, ooh, I should probably change some of that. Um and then there were things in the um public production that I knew I wanted to uh do a little bit of a read right on but like we got again i was in rehearsal um in philly so it was a little hard for me to be there so there was some stuff that i knew i wanted to change um that i just went ahead and did anyway and i felt like if i if the the heart of the story was largely the same which it is that i was just sort of adding grace notes that it's it's fine (laughs) (laughs) um I'm trying to choose which which of the changes I'm curious to ask you um, more about. I think one question that I, one like very small change that I thought was interesting is that when Tidra says that she knows it's hard for Juicy to be someone like you in a place like this, you've added a line where she refers to him as her best friend. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting and in, in sort of refracting their relationship in a different way or sort of deepening yeah. that. Can, I, can you talk more about sort of how that uh, relationship evolved and maybe how Nikki Crawford's performance sort of shifted your understanding of the character? 
that was actually Nikki's idea. Nikki was like, I need something else there. Like it was one of the, when we came back to the rehearsal room for Broadway, it was one of the first things she said to me. She was like, everything is amazing. There's just one thing. I just need something to make, um, to, to root myself in this moment. And I said, okay, let me think about it. And I went home and thought about it. And I was like, it, there needs to be something about their relationship that is more, We it should be revealed at some moment that it's more codependent than we think. And what I came up with was, you know, um, you're my best friend. I don't know how to be without you. You don't get to go crazy. Which is a loving sort of yeah. terrible thing to say to someone. <laughs> but <Right>. it's like, <laughs> you know, absolutely steeped in in love. Um, but it's also steeped in a real terror. She's like seeing him talk to the wind. Like that's that other thing that's like hard in that moment is um, she can't see who he's talking to. We can. It's h- hilarious to us. We think it's a hoot. And then um, we realize that she's really scared. Because she knows if he's gone, she's just stuck with this insane man in her house. Like she really does need him there. And um, I just thought that was a wonderful suggestion. And it's now one of my favorite moments in the play. And but that that's why you listen to the actors. Yeah. I another moment that I Adriana Mitchell, who plays Opal, mentioned in the talk back that I that I attended, um, that the that the passage where she talks about how women bloom was added for the Broadway production. Um, so I'm curious yeah. if you could talk about that, that moment too. Me and Adriana had a conversation after the show at, at the public where I, I think, no, I remember where this came from. I was listening to a podcast. It was a review, review podcast. I can't remember what their, what the podcast was called. I feel terrible. Y'all, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry. But I, you really did help me out. Um, they were saying they wished there was more softness in Opal. And then I, w- I went to Adriana, or I messaged her and I said, hey, what do, you, what do you think about this? And she was like, yeah, I think that that's, that's really smart. And so I wanted her to have this moment where she was, you know, allowed to be a little delicate for a second um, and then immediately throw it away, you know? <laughs> um, and so that's where it was a combination of like, you know, I listening to two people who really enjoyed the show, but like had this one little gripe with the yeah. character and then going, OK, I could I can meet my audience in that way. I think that that's important. So, yeah. Um, I want to end by um, partly directing folks listening to your website if you have kind of an enchanting mm. website where you have. Um, oh, thank you. You have you. um <laughs> One thing that's cool, you have a you have a page with sort of a a list of ideas for plays I want to write but got no business writing, um, yes. which is a lot of fun to explore. Um, but then also um, you have this page of philosophy, and I kind of wanted to break down like all of it because it's really interesting. Sort of your sort of your like an artistic statement of a sort, I guess. Um, yeah. But just in the interest of time, I'm gonna gonna cherry pick a couple a couple of lines that I want to sort of ask yeah. you about in conversation with this play in particular, um, where um, in talking about um, extremes are natural, I find the divine in the extreme. Um, divine is also the word that Larry uses to reintroduce himself in the final 
scene and and that also really the ideas of extremes which i think you mentioned earlier in this conversation um really sort of le leans into sort of the 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 places that this play goes um and and you will in, in that statement you will say art should be both surprising and inevitable and i think that especially for me the broadway production more so than at the public i felt the sort of inevitability of where we end up um and i i'm i'm curious for you to just share more about sort of that that finding the divine in the extreme um and sort of how you thought about that in fat ham um I, I I think I've for a long time tried to tell myself that I'm like some weird sort of minimalist artist that likes very clean things and things to be sort of everything in its right place. And that's not really who I am at all. I'm much more of a maximalist and messy and um and that's scary terrain to traverse, I think, um, in the theater. One, because it's expensive, you know, to have things that at scale, to have things that feel like grand and large gestures technically feel very um, scary, I think, for theater. So I try to put that inside of character and behavior. And so I try to put two people in a scene that are at either ends of extremity so that a lot of the conflict and the tension is just personality. It's just, whoa, that is a lot of person or that is a very small person. I want to come in closer. Like it's it's about that sort of um, balance or imbalance. You know, I, I think the extremity um, it it inspires wonder in the person who's watching. And I think that we need more of that. I I often will sort of be sitting somewhere and I'll go, what was the last time I wondered at wandered? Just like, oh my God, like something yeah. that was just too much to take in. Um, I feel a little bit like, you know, when I, I went on a, a honeymoon to Paris and we were there for almost three weeks. It was amazing. Congratulations. And we, <laughs> when I first got there, every time I saw the Eiffel Tower, it was just like, ah! Just like the most yeah. amazing thing, and then by the time I left, I would see it, and it wouldn't—I wouldn't even register it as special because I'd been there for almost a month. Right. And it only took me a month. It didn't even take me a whole month to get to the point that the freaking Eiffel Tower stopped being yeah special. Um, and so, how do you create or try to create the conditions in which, in the theater, people can experience wonder, which is a thing that. I feel like the theater uniquely, and live performance in general, is uniquely capable of doing. Um, so that's a part of what I mean by finding the, the divine in the extremity is one of the things that I miss about going to church every Sunday is this sense of collective, you know, euphoria or, um, effervescence maybe is is the word like this sort of we're all moving up in this direction and more and more I've, i have felt like theater is making people individuals like you're having your individual experience and you're not registering how your experience is affecting other people or even affecting what's on stage so um 
I think it is divine to try to get people to be moving in the same direction and arriving at the same spot. I think that that is uh, special. And I think that is a great place to wrap up, especially with the one more quote. <laughs> I just want to read from your from your page of philosophy, um, which is that plays are gestures towards expanding community around an idea. When an idea transforms into a play, more people possess it. Um, and I think that's what you're describing yeah. in your answer there too. And I think it's something that I've definitely seen happening in the audiences at Fat Ham and heard people talking about um, when they speak about seeing this play. So thank you so much for uh, the play and, and congratulations on the journey that it's taken up to this point. Um, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. If you enjoyed this episode of The Present Stage, please share it with a friend. Please give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. And please follow us at The Present Stage on Instagram. 